0: Hey, well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voysen, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And we have David Sachs joining us. And David has a new book out. He's joining us from Toronto, Canada. The Future is Analog. How to Create a More Human World. Well, we definitely need to do that, David. Um, The big question is, probably most of my listeners is uh, how, (laughs) right? (laughs) So, you know... But it's good to have you on the show. I'm going to, I'm going to tell my listeners a little bit about you. You're a writer, reporter, speaker who specializes in business and cultures. Uh, his, he has other books out, but one is The Revenge of Analog. Um, was a number one post bestseller. Um, he's also been translated into six languages. He's the author of three other books, Save the Delhi, which has won a James Beard award, The Soul of an Entrepreneur and the tastemakers and as i said he lives in toronto and uh, he's a wonderful writer that's the key this book is easy to read a lot of great stories opportunity for people to explore themselves what it would be to be more analog versus more digital now you know you in the introduction of this book you tell a great story about being, being invited to speak at a conference in korea about your prior book, uh, The Revenge of Analog. And you were greeted by a reporter, hey, David, hey, David. You know, they ran up to you. I remember reading that part in the book. Um, What do you think about the fourth industrial revolution, the reporter said? And you being a prior reporter, you had a little snide remark. (laughs) But can you tell the story and um, why your passion for returning to more of a community and humanistic kind of lifestyle. I mean, it almost seems like we're ensconced in this as a world, you know, and, and, uh, there is a way to be more human and I'd love to know how, what you think.
1: Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so the story is, is kind of this random one. I was invited to speak in uh, Seoul at this, you know, big fancy business conference. So I was like, great. Awesome. I've never been to Korea before. You're paying me a lot of money. Great, you know, business class ticket. I'll take it. Awesome. Get off the flight. You know, thirteen hours in the air. I'm just like exhausted. to the side of my head. <laughs> my mouth smells like death. Um, and and all of a sudden there's this TV crew running up. Like, David tax David tax I was like, yes. You know, <laughs> like I just got out of luggage plane. You're like what do you think about the, I think it was the fifth industrial revolution or fourth industrial revolution, right? For, What do you think about the fourth industrial revolution? I was like, well, it's like the convergence of AI and and, and super sentient beings, the, the digital future. And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I, I'm more interested in the analog future, which was the reason I was brought there is to sort of talk about this. And my book was actually a big hit in Korea, which I found out the next day randomly. Um, but it that kind of triggered this, thought process that that i had which eventually led to this book in some way um plus the pandemic uh and and it was this assumption that that reporter had had um really summed up uh that when we talk about the future we're talking about digital When we talk about the future we're talking about computers we're talking about technology we're talking about hardware we're talking about software we're talking about ai you know this is the framework with which we have to approach the future whether we're in business, whether we're in government, whether we're in culture, whether it's in our individual lives the future is digital. how many times have people said, well we live in a digital world or we're going to live in a digital world right How many times do you hear that Greg?
0: all the time
1: all the time right and no one ever questions that notion. no one ever says, hold on, what do you mean by that like what do you mean digital world we're, we're, we're humans right we live on a planet. Um, that has real consequences. you know it's a, a planet that we're warming very quickly and we we the the most important thing right now is not like what our phone looks like, but it's like how hot the water is off the coast of of of, of San Diego where you are and what effect is that going to have on I don't know, drinking water and forest fires and our livability as a species. And yet we've been so incredibly focused these past, 25 or so years on digital because of what it's brought us because of the change that it's made that the idea of a digital future was just this accepted form of reality and then what happened was the pandemic right uh bat got sick somewhere in china three years ago and um you know a chain reaction just uh uh, went away the, the the butterfly effect the black swan um, and suddenly you know it's March 2020 we're all inside living that digital future right we're going to school and working and socializing and doing everything in our lives online all of our
0: all of our commerce
1: everything uh, everything yeah uh, all of our socializing all of our commerce all of our culture all of our religion all of our everything is being done through digital devices through hardware and software. And in many ways, we're living the predicted future that has been promised to us and sold to us by Silicon Valley for many years. You know, this was it. We were all, you know, in the future, you're going to be able to work from wherever and schools won't even be buildings. People learn from the best teachers everywhere on earth. And if you want something, you'll just say it to a speaker, to a thing, it'll pick it up and it'll be dropped at your door. And isn't that going to be wonderful? And then we live through it. Right. And very quickly we realized this is not the future we bargained for, or, or if it was like, it actually stinks uh, a large part of it. And so this book is really asking that question of really, okay, well, what, what did we learn about not just the limits of digital, but the values of analog of the real physical face-to-face spaces, relationships, interactions that we have as humans in this world. And, and what, Kind of a future we want to build that elevates those where they matter, right?
0: Yeah. And while uh, technology has advanced us in almost every area of our life and much of it to the positive, um, the here we are yeah, speaking on video call, yeah, right? on Zoom. But the social interaction part, I get the isolation part, I understand. We're going to talk about that because, you know, it has. <clears throat> done more to our psyche as far as i'm concerned with relation to like you and i here right now you know it's like hey we can talk to anybody across the world i get an interview tomorrow in dublin ireland with a guy another author you know it's like it is pretty amazing to be able to capture this media and then reshare it and give it to the world and all of that but i also understand that i i miss that physical connection to sit with david and have a cup of coffee right and and really you know, see David's reactions and, you know, listen to his emotions and so on. And we, we all so well remember this outbreak of COVID-19. I know exactly where I was at the time when it happened in 2019, The changes that thrust upon us. And here we are three years later, still dealing with the issues of it. You know, it isn't gone, that's for certain. Um, But in your estimation, I just had it three weeks ago. Yeah, you know, and I didn't get it, but I had a bad flu and it was, you know, it felt like I had it. But my point is, in your estimation, what is the significant impact to the digital versus analog world? And what do you mean by kind of an analog future? How do these coexist? In other words, we have kind of much of us displaced one for the other. Mm-hmm. And I think we're coming back to this. Yeah. um balance between the two it's almost like a homeostasis right mm-hmm. it's like okay our body wants this homeostasis but how do we kind of get there david we we kind of feel like okay we're we're st- you know let's go get uber and have uber eats and let's go you know instead of going to the th- theater we're going to turn on uh netflix and we're going to watch a great thing on netflix and it's just so ingrained in us now um and I do miss that other side, and I have to admit I'm probably one of them who's not doing as much socializing, but uh, I should be. Yeah, I think the the term you use there,
1: balance, is the great one, right? Because <clears throat> the promise of the digital future, and 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 the sort of philosophical underpinning of the people who are creating it and selling it, and I say the term Silicon Valley. I don't mean people just working in the Bay Area. Uh, right. You know, we're talking about anyone who's involved in sort of designing, promoting, and selling, marketing this technology as the future. And and it's really based on this idea of exponential growth, right? It's it's Moore's law. It's like the every eighteen months the, the microprocessors are going to shrink in size and double in power and have in speed. And um and that's why your phone keeps getting better and better and a computer does too. But it kind of costs the same dollar amount as it did in 1980. Um, uh, and that allows for constant new innovations and so on. And that just keeps going up and up. And that I think was, was this notion of inevitability that mm-hmm. if this year we're doing 10% of our transactions online through online shopping, then next year it'll be 12%. And after that'll be 15, after that'll be 20 and no, 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 until we won't need stores and we won't need these things. Cause this inevitably everything's going to sort of move in that direction. Um, but it wasn't there yet there was this balance, right? Even people were people were doing remote work. People were using Zoom. People were were, were working remotely, but it was a smaller percentage of people, right? Um, and then what happened was with COVID-19, we were all kind of like dunked into this uh, immersion in, in a fully digital existence or an almost fully digital existence in, in almost every aspect of our lives. And it was, in a way, this test drive, if you want to call it, of that digital future, um, but we very quickly tipped that balance where digital became the dominant force. And so we we instantly saw within days what was working for us and what wasn't with that balance, right? And I think each individual, each company, each organization felt that differently. So work is a great example, right? Because it's really the one that's still being figured out. And for some people, it's like, this is great. I never want to go back to an office again. This works great for me. Maybe the company's like, this is fabulous for us. You know, this is it. We're done with offices. Terminate the leases. You know, sell off the chairs. Um, close the boardroom. You know, send the plants home. We're good with this. And others where it was like, hold on, I really miss that. I want to get back to that office. Like, I miss my routine. I miss, I miss the community. I miss all the aspects. I miss the people. I miss the the space. I miss being able to manage people and see them. Whatever it is. And now what's happening, especially in work is figuring out that homeostasis right is figuring out what that balance is based on our current needs and our previous experience of the past couple of years where you know that fully digital um, experiment was conducted and you know the feeling of it um, was unmistakable like people you know it was very visceral and I think that was that was the interesting part of it
0: yeah. And I do, I, I know I have a son that works at Adobe and I've watched this gradual come back to work three day a week kind of thing. Yeah. I've seen this happen in many of these digital economy kind of businesses, right? right? Obviously the brick and mortar businesses, they've kind of always been there. Restaurants, hospitals, places where people have to serve others 24 seven, right? Yeah. Uh, that's been there, but we have seen that shift back again and, um, it is working. It is working. Um, he's, he's telling me, Hey, dad, you know, it's, it's working. We're finding this balance again, uh, to be able to work remotely, uh, and also come back in and have group right. meetings and talk to one another and have that interaction. And it's good. So I think we're seeing that. You, you speak about the major shift in working. Over thirty percent of American workers working from home I'm surprised it was only that was 30. At the height yeah that yeah. was that was I think at the height of the pandemic, yeah, uh, but you know to me, it seems like it was even more because that's you even said in your book you look, you've only gone into an office once and it was to do some publishing something or another, and yeah. you've always worked from home. I haven't always worked from home, <clears throat> you know, I used to have a business with employees, and they used to come in just like you were talking about. But the shift that has impacted our mental health, I think this is a key here, um, and our job level satisfaction. Then the measurement that we use, at least if you're kind of like me is, um, what are the wins? What are the wins I had today? Right. And it's so difficult to measure in a digital world because it just keeps coming up on the screen, and there's always more to do. Your to-do list keeps getting longer and bigger, and more exasperated to try and finish it. Um, so, job level satisfaction went down, mental health problems went up, and you quoted uh, Arnon, Arnold. Uh, I'm sorry, Aaron Dingham, a business coach and author, is saying it revealed that we do not have a good grasp on what makes work work. Um. In your estimation what does the future of work look like? Uh I wrote a book called Wisdom Wellness and Redefining Work about I don't know 2012 and I remember as I was writing that book I was investigating all of these elements. Um and what does the future of work look like? I mean I think long term
1: the future work probably holds A lot in common with the past work, right? Because the things that we think of as work Mm -hmm. um, and we thought of as work prior to the pandemic were very much the sort of deliverable and measurable and quantifiable tasks that we did in order to get paid or create a product or a service or sell it, right? Right. Um, and so we were able to take those very quickly and easily. Like we're talking days. Every company did it. Small companies, small businesses, large corporations. Nobody went bankrupt because, like, I don't know, we can't figure out how to move this whole business online. You know, if it was a business that dealt in information and services. Um, uh, everyone was able to sort of do it really quickly. And yet that sense of dissatisfaction, that sense of depression, that sense of losing ideas um of 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 some sort of magic coming off of it. I think that's a pretty pervasive thing that's happened. And and what Aaron Dingham was saying about we don't know what makes work work is we we looked at the whole sum of work. Like you talked about your company that you had in an office and we're like, okay, we have these individuals sitting in these desks in this configuration of an office and they're doing this stuff and this stuff is the this stuff is the GDP. It's the economic engine. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the, where the money comes from. It's the, it's the, it's the, the productivity. It's, it's the productivity, point, the cogs yeah. that make the machine turn. Right. Right. And all this other stuff around them, the water cooler, the bathrooms, the building, the architecture, the coffee shop downstairs, the sad office lunch, the, you know, um, cake for Susan, whose birthday it is, the retirement party, the, the 10 minutes of chat between meetings. This is, this is all superfluous, wasted stuff. It's just like, Extra trappings that come along with it. Um, and now we can actually just, you know, the, the promise of remote work, the promise of virtual, virtual offices, which has been around for, you know, we're talking 40, 50 years, right? Yeah. The paperless office notion came out, um, and remote work and telecommuting. Like this is all from like late seventies, early eighties. The sort of vision of this is like, if we cut out all that stuff, we're going to be so much more productive. People have much more time. They'll be happy. They'll be more focused on their task at hand and all that other BS, commuting, chit chat, office, politics, blah, blah, blah. That's going to be a done by. So it's going to be, it's going to be this revolution in working. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. in many ways that that has occurred at some organizations or people have noticed, yeah, you know, I I don't have to deal with the rest of the stuff. It's much more efficient. And yet There's a lot of that stuff that I think people actually didn't realize the value of until it was gone, right? The value of seeing other humans outside your house, who you work with in person on a daily basis is actually tremendously valuable because- what happens in those interactions? It's not like now we're having a work interaction. Now we're having a personal interaction. Things bleed into one another. Those relationships build trust and confidence. And those confidence and, and trust is what allows ideas and thoughts and honesty to sort of flow and germinate. Um, and that allows for new ideas for, you know, um, shifts in strategy, whatever that. Doesn't come as easily when everybody's separated online. So, your son works for Adobe. It's a fabulous company. I've been there before when I was researching one of my other books um, to their offices in San Francisco. And, you know, they're very focused on getting individuals to talk and interact with each other Um, uh, and do it in all sorts of different ways because it is a company that's based upon. Software for creative individuals and they need creative ideas. And it's Mm -hmm. very hard to create that when everybody is off in their own world. And it's like, okay, I need a creative idea from you, Greg. Go. Right. Yeah. It doesn't happen that way. (laughs) Where maybe we're banging our heads against our desk because we're trying to figure out a new, I don't know, Photoshop application thing or whatever. And then it's like, oh, let's go get a coffee. And we go downstairs and we go to coffee. Maybe we go for a walk around the block. In San Francisco, we see something, that thing gives us an idea, we're having a conversation, and it turns into the next great Photoshop feature or whatever it is, right? Um, uh, and I think again, you know, the the future of work I think is gonna be that mix. It's gonna be I I really identifying the parts of work that doesn't really matter whether you do them online or here, you know, expense reports, right. Um, You know, uh, scheduling or calendars or, or something like, you know, process oriented emails or programming, right. Like if someone's sitting there programming in an office and, you know, doing it like at home, maybe that like specific type of programming or code writing or whatever is, 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 you know, accounting, I don't know. Like all these, you know, very sort of process oriented things. But then what are the elements of it that actually aren't as quantifiable? That you can't say, well, this contributes X to the bottom line. Um and you know, we studied it and this is how many hours people are working and therefore da 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 da. da it's like that coffee break, that walk, the, the 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 relationships. Even, you know, what what uh one gentleman I interviewed for the book Andres Hofbrauer called um embodied cognition, which is like the awareness around ideas and understanding of group ideas that an individual employee or worker will get simply by walking through the office every day so that you walk by and I see Greg's desk and there's a sketch of something and that sketch evolves. And I see it out of the corner of my eye every day when I walk to the elevator. And all of a sudden you go and give your presentation and I already have an idea of it because I've seen it. I've seen the things you've been pinning up. I hear snippets of you talking about it when we meet up at the water cooler or whatever, right? Those things actually have a value. And sometimes it's hard to put a, a, a dollar sign on them, but that's something that we have to accept, right? Because not everything is this notion of efficiency. And, there's and, this and it is, yeah.
0: there is a difference, David, too, between the way the generations work. There's been lots of studies, right? You got the Gen Zers, Gen X, you've got you know all these generations in the workplace today. And- you know, the pandemic I think had maybe less of an impact on the younger generation, like say Gen Z, because that's mm. what they they really like. But um, I, see, I'm very very skeptical
1: anytime about that. Someone, anytime someone makes a generational, a sweeping generation, generational generalization, yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I I I my ears my 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 ears go up, and and I'll tell you why, right? Because those things. Maybe survey a tremendous number of people and say, "Well, we did a survey of a thousand people, and this is what we found." Right? Or right. we've observed this behavior. You're talking about a sweeping generalization about, I don't know, hundreds of millions of people across the globe, right? Um, but I think they're talking
0: have- about their values. What did what it, each generation values? I'm not saying we don't have yeah. common values. For sure, we do. We look. I'm 68 <laughs> years old, so look, I, I I've been around a while. And I recognize that my generation has, we, I, I can see it happening. And sometimes customer service is a great example. So when I was growing up, it was like Paramount. Today, you're lucky if you get any customer service, kind of almost anywhere, um, other than maybe Apple. I'll just put a b- big thing out for Apple. Um, big Apple. so yeah, exactly. My point is, is that. I do believe there are some value differences and there's been a shift in the way in which people work. We're talking about work, how we work. Um, look, you can look to your father even and go, he probably woke up every morning. He had to go do something. He had to come home and you know, take care of the kids. Your mom did the same thing. We're We're still seeing that, but we're seeing it done in a different way. I do believe the stressors today are actually, they seem to be greater the actual stressors of living in the world today. Mm-hmm. Um And that brings me to a question, which I don't want to skip this one, which is you have kids and you even wrote in the book about how it was to kind of tear your hair out while they were trying to learn over the Internet. Right. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> so we've seen the fallout of the pandemic. My wife was a school teacher for 25 years. How our digital system and the attempts to digitize learning. You state in your chapter on school that nowhere did the utopian idea of the digital future crash harder on the rocks of analog reality than with school. I would agree with you. Can you tell us the story of Larry Cuban and what he told you about the education? He said what the education really was was, and what you believe the future of education should be. I think this is a big one. This yeah. is a really big one, actually. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, you know, the promise of digital education, even as, as an idea, as an ideology, predates computers, right? Thomas mm-hmm. Edison, late 19th century, early 20th century is coming up with all sorts of inventions, uh, <laughs> among them, you know, early forms of radio um, you know, the first kind of phonographs and recorded sound and, and film. Right. Um, and he's saying, look, this is transformative. We are not going to need schools in the future because why would you have a bunch of people sitting in a a room that you have to pay for and staff and shovel the snow for and do whatever when the best minds <laughs> can deliver lectures to students anywhere at any time, uh, students shouldn't be trapped in this sort of specific space. Um, and that grew, you know, as digital computers um, evolved, especially going on into the sort of 1980s and 90s, with CD-ROMs and the internet and, you know, streaming video into all sorts of promises around this, right? Um, and, you know, the, the One Laptop Per Child initiative from Nicholas Negroponte and folks at MIT, um, the MOOC movement from um, Sebastian Thurn at Google and, and uh, lots of brilliant folks in Silicon Valley and, and Stanford were saying, look. We're going to videotape the best lectures of the best universities and they're going to be open to everyone. And this is the future. We're not going to have university campuses and, and, and giving laptops to kids, giving tablets to, to every student in, in the LA school district as they did about 10 years ago. And every one of these things was a dismal failure, not like a, that's weird, know, like total complete failure, right? The MOOC movement, best, brightest minds, tons and tons of money behind it. When they rolled it out to universities in the universities, um, California, uh, college system um, in a a couple of sort of pilot projects. It was like 10% of people finished the course, 10%. Could you imagine a university course where 10% of people finished it? That (laughs) professor would be fired immediately and the department would be shut down, right? Yeah. So, you know, still, tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars being invested in ed tech a a lot of it not all of it but a lot of it with the promise of like schools are an institution that's obsolete and need to be disrupted this is ridiculous that we put all these people sitting in this chair staring at this person online this isn't how we should learn right and then along comes the pandemic and every single student in the world except for some in new zealand (laughs) (laughs) kindergarten all the way to grad school are doing this for their school in different platforms you know best most you know highly funded private schools harvard mit oxford the sorbonne the fanciest private high school and elementary school in the richest parts of the richest countries of the world and of course all the public schools right you know with their varying levels of 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 lower funding everywhere and everywhere was a Disney, right total. like total. students students you know, comprehension went down. Their marks weren't down. Their learning went down. Their antisocial behaviors went up. Um, rise of depression. Rise of 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 uh, a, a lack of of um, motivation. And I saw it with my own kids who were in kindergarten and second grade. I mean, it was just dismal to watch. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Tough. How unmotivated? How bored? How you know? They they learned specific things. They learned facts. My son learned to read in that time. Mostly by reading books here, but you know, as teachers, did their best, but it was, it was clearly not a success. And so, to get to Larry Cuban. So, Larry Cuban is a professor at Stanford University who studies digital technology and education and the history and sort of um, reality of it. Uh, He began in the 80s being a booster of ed tech, but very quickly saw the limitations of that uh, when it was put into practice. And he explained to me in in the most wonderfully clear way what what's going on he said that digital technology just like film and and sound as as edison did and even print is it is a tremendous vehicle for the delivery of information right information which we think is the core of education learning one plus one learning how to read learning comprehension learning science learning all these different things it's the information but he said but in education isn't information Right. Education is fundamentally a human relationship yeah. between a teacher and their students, between students, each other, between the students and the school and the community surrounding it. Whether we're talking about an elementary school in a neighborhood or a university campus and the, the city and the state where it's in, and its alumni network, you know, go Beavers, I don't know, whatever. Um, uh, and, um, and he said, and that human relationship is actually what allows for learning. Because when you think back to the best teachers you've ever had, and I, I, I'm challenging you to name one right now, who's one of the best teachers you ever had, Greg? Uh,
0: a guy in high school, doctor, or not doctor. Um, he, he taught me environmental sciences. I can't remember his name, but I was okay. really fascinated by the subject. Right. But was it the facts he taught you or was it how he taught? No, it was... I think it was my curiosity about the topic. I was extremely mm-hmm. curious and still have been to this day. I mean, we're talking high school to 68 years old, um, just like you were speaking about earlier, degradation of, you know, CO2 emissions and water and everything. And I've been a big advocate of that. So I think yeah. it was the fact that he was teaching something that I went into a course and I was like, wow, I just want to just, I'm just, I have this insatiable curiosity about mm-hmm. But that's it, right? People
1: remember who the teacher is. They 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 they, they remember the subject, Mr.
0: Alexander.
1: But you may not remember mm-hmm. the specific facts that Mr. Alexander taught, right? You. And those facts were available to you. But I'm sure the way he taught and the relationship he built with his class, or at least with you, was you know the the core of what that was. And what Larry Cuban says is, this is a tremendous medium for transmitting information you want to learn about climate change and the 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 planetary sciences and environmental sciences you know go to google go to youtube um, go look online you can find un papers animations for kids you know everything you want interactive things or whatever but in order to make you truly care about that and turn that information into knowledge requires that relationship and that is cut off when you do this right when you remove students from the class, when you remove teachers from that personal relationship, and they're just delivery delivery mechanisms for information, that's the difference. And that's why it failed. And so when you think about the future of education, it's not more tech in the classroom, it's less tech in the classroom. Or if there's tech, the tech is either there to learn specifically about the technology, like computer science, for example, or, or coding, or any any sort of um, STEM-type subject that'll use computers as a tool, Or it's in the background, right? It's there working with the administration. It's helping the teacher plan their lesson, but it doesn't get in the way. And some of the most interesting school and and most successful school systems in the world, like the Finnish education system, uh, they they have very little tech. They have very little standardized testing, right? It's actually more about engaging as much as possible with the student on a human-to-human level to get them curious and interested in learning that makes those systems successful. Where the American system is almost entirely based on sort of a quantifiable measure of information retention and success, which is, you know, the, the Yeah, the,
0: take the SAT or take the various yeah, yeah, the
1: crazy focus on standardized testing, which has delivered yeah. like mediocre results. America ranks in the middle mm-hmm. of um world's um you know, global measures of of how well it educates its its population.
0: Well, I think the studies that have Substantiated what you're talking about, and Larry Cuban. You know, as I was speaking with Dan Bittner, the guy that wrote the Blue Zones book, right? So Dan was on here about a week ago, and he's got any. All these demographers went around studied where people lived over 100 years old. We got into this discussion about apps changing behavior, and an app on a phone, right? Changing a behavior. Billions of dollars put into apps. And he said, you know, what we found is the rate of um, retention there is so low that after seven months of use, no one's using those apps anymore to actually track their weight or track the food they're eating or make a substantial change. Right. This is about education, right? 101, education 101. He said, but when you change the environment, in which the people live that's when you can have a change so they go into a city they change the laws they say hey look we're going to serve better food we're going to have bicycle paths we're going to do whatever we need and he's actually been able to lower the bmi from three to four percent in a whole city whole cities right i loved his approach because what he's saying is look when you change our options in the environment right it's like a school right being in a school the, the school the environment of the school to me when I was going to school was as big a part of anything versus being stuck in my bedroom in front of a screen right that isn't the most appropriate environment, okay so I loved in the college, going from classroom to classroom, learning from professor to professor. Uh, interacting with kids over lunch and doing whatever. I mean, let's face it, that's college. That's college. Uh, that's that's college right. that's college right. is not the stuff you learn. Right. <laughs> right. No <laughs> right. one's like
1: wearing their <laughs> Yale sweater because they're like, well, actually, I learned these facts at Yale. <laughs> right. It's like, these are the people I met. These are the yeah. relationships I built. Right. This right. is why I paid, you know, fought to get in and paid so much money to build these relationships and immerse myself in this physical analog environment <laughs> in order to learn in this place, right? So I could wear this sweatshirt while I'm jogging on Central Park or whatever.
0: Well, I want to be sensitive to your time and I have lots more questions, but I do want to let my listeners know that this book touches every day as a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I think one of the most important ones that you speak about really is Sunday. And I'll tell you why. Because you're speaking about something that's this integration of the soul and some spirituality. Um, and you start your Sunday thing off. I thought it was quite funny about you putting on your wetsuit to go surfing. Who in the hell goes surfing in Toronto in the freezing cold? But I guess you do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You have to be really like quite ridiculous to want to go out. But (laughs) maybe you're learning uh, cold baths. I love that because maybe you're going to extend your lifespan. Can you tell the listeners the story and getting out in nature as to how nurturing that is for our souls, regardless of the weather conditions or any other excuses we might make up to deter our adventure into the wilderness because to me that is really for me that's my reconnection to everything is going and riding my bike or going down to the beach or walking in the woods or doing anything and i think that's part of what this world needs more of yeah
1: uh there's there's a wonderful gentleman that i talked to for the book um Richard Louvre, who is a, a San Diegan, um, yeah, I know uh, wrote uh, you know, Last Child in the Woods, um, is really a a figurehead in American life for um reconnecting ourselves with nature. Yeah. And uh I think this is something that everyone during the course of the pandemic suddenly discovered, right? Because you are now, you know, kind of like a child. Free to sit inside and eat all the crap you want, all the candy you want, all the bread, all the pastry. You know, go drink and you know take all the weed gummies you want, and you can watch as much Netflix as you want. You, there's nowhere to go anymore. Like just sit inside and like binge whatever show you wanted. And I think within a few days or weeks, most people were like, all right, I, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. And people would walk. Like you would go in cities, towns, everywhere. People were just walking. You go on hiking trails and they were packed bike sales went through the roof they, you know they sold out of bikes they right. sold out of bikes worldwide you had to like right. i've i've have, I have two friends who own bike stores and it's the only reason my children on bicycles um uh you know everything was just anything that was outdoors was in such high demand even here in Toronto where people surf the worst possible waves in the worst possible weather um you know sub zero temperatures wind waves slop dirty water like the surf store was selling out of waves in wetsuits. Yeah, I mean, you even wetsuits. said
0: you surf when and you had a condom floating in the water. No, oh, that, like, that oh was God. that was yeah. That, yeah
1: that's, <laughs> I've had that happen in California too. So yeah. Thank yeah. you for at least having safe sex, everyone. Uh-huh, yeah. Um but you know, it 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 it, it showed that yearning for something beyond our screens, that this isn't sufficient for the body and for the soul. Um, And, and, you know, I had a wonderful week last week. I was on book tour in uh, the West coast of the U S. So, you know, I found myself on the first day in San Francisco and I really had nothing to do till my event that night. And I love San Francisco and it was a beautiful, like blue, blue sky day. And I like, Went. I rented an e-bike, you know, uh, and, and went along the water and then hiked all these paths all along past the golden gate bridge, all the way to sunset beach, like the cliffs above looking at the ocean. It was just, it was so wonderful. It was like all I needed and I was so content and so happy. And then the next day in Portland, you know, I came in from Seattle, Seattle was pouring, pouring rain, like miserable, <laughs> boring rain. But, um, but Seattle, the rain had just ended and I walked through the forest there in Washington park and like just covered in pine needles and feeling so alive and the smell of all of that. And then the last day I was in LA and in LA, it was raining for the first time in six months, but my friend and I went on a hike in, in, you know, just outside Malibu in a Canyon and we were covered in mud and it was like, it was great. It was amazing. It was such a wonderful thing. And why it's like, this is something we need. And I think we've, we've realized that, right. This is like a fundamental human need that we can't replace with a Peloton bike and like a simulation of moving right. through, through the world. Right? right. Um, And, and I think this is that, that soul aspect where it's like, you know, church services, synagogue services, mosque services, you know, Buddhist meditations, transcendental Californian yoga, like all of that went online, you could zoom, you could, you could sign up, you could stream every class, audio, video, virtual reality, whatever. And it's just, it's it's insufficient. People wanted to go back to those places and sit in uncomfortable positions in order to be connected to something bigger than themselves. And that's connected with the people with them and connected to the person who's delivering the sermon or talk or service or experience. And that sense that you're part of something bigger, right?
0: Yeah, no, it is important, the community. You talk about it in the book. And that is everything. That's everything. You know, it's like I was like you, I was brought up Jewish, but I didn't like keep that. Uh, I'm a member of Self-Realization Fellowship here in Encinitas, right? And that temple was shut down for two years, literally two years, including the meditation grounds, which are beautiful right on the beach in Encinitas. And I was like, well, these guys are so conservative. Why don't they let us go outdoors? Because these are outside meditation gardens. And and yet they were still closed. You couldn't get into them. And I was like, to me, it was like just ridiculous. So I start on my own meditation gardens, right? So we find ways to make up for it. Um, I'm going to make this the last question because, you know, timing. Um, your book is a place for our readers and our listeners to question how they're living their lives and provides new perspectives about an analog approach to living. What reflection would you like to leave the listeners with about the, uh, the future is analog? If you were to leave them with one or two things, what would you advise them? What might you encourage them to think about or to do?
1: That's a great question. Um, I would, you know, we went through a very traumatic time the past couple of years of the pandemic Um, and and certainly, you know, nobody's yearning to go back there. And so there's this desire to kind of move on, right? Um, But I think we actually went through something really valuable, which is that we all got to live this experiment in this promised digital future. That is still being sold to us and pitched to us by people like Mark Zuckerberg and his metaverse virtual reality sort of fantasy land. Um, and businesses are still trying to sell us on this. And, and, and I think whenever someone tells you something about the future, we now have this gauge that we can sort of look back and say, hey, was, my, what, was that part of my life better when it was all digital? Um, and what did I realize about the things that are analog, that are physical, that are tactile, that are human, that are sort of eternal, right? Mm-hmm. Like going for a hike or going surfing or meditating mm-hmm. are you that or are you I actually really value. And so if if we're able to realize the parts that humanize us the most and make those a core value of what we do, then when any new technology comes along, we can we can judge that technology against it. And we could say... Is this going to elevate my human experience? Is it going to make me more connected to others, to myself, to my coworkers, to the world around me? Or is this actually competing with it? Is this trying to disrupt it and take it away? Um and I think we'll know in our own lives where we fall with that and we can make conscious decisions about which technology to adapt and which technology to you know say no thanks Mark. Um I'm I'm good. I'm good with reality.
0: Well, David, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. And I think, and, and to conclude this, from my perspective after having read the book, and I want all the readers to go out and get a copy. The future is analog. The other okay. thing is go to davidsax.com. You can learn more about David there, that book, his other books. One thing that I think that I took away from it is if you look at all the days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> that you kind of used as a, a stepping off point to write about commerce and to write about education and to write about these various things, was when you kind of pull it all together, the humanistic side of being much more compassionate, loving to ourselves and to others is, is truly at the essence of you know, we need to be more kind to others and ourselves, right? The digital world sometimes doesn't look at kindness and compassion. It looks at productivity and how do you generate the next thing so that you can make some more money, right? Or make monetization, right? And our world, meaning this Western world, has embraced it so heavily and it's such a bias that breaking that bias that we have is tough. I get that. For all my listeners out there who are on the path, like I said, try and find some balance. We're not going to get rid of the digital world altogether, but we could bring in more of this humanistic side, which you said, this more of this community side, this more support. Um, I know my nonprofit that the authors support. I go out and give away hundred dollar gift cards to people that are out on the streets that are homeless. Right. And, and I think the most important thing here is this, you can have, you can coexist in both of these worlds and you can do it with more peace, compassion, and harmony for yourself and for others. Um, And that if that's all you take away from this book, that's the greatest thing you could take away. From the
1: book. Amen. That's fabulous. Uh, yeah. Yes. I'm going to namaste to that. That
0: Okay. Well, namaste to you, my friend. Have a good next podcast. I appreciate you. you. Sorry for a few technical difficulties, but thanks for being on the show. That's the analog reality. That is. Thank you, Greg. This was a real pleasure. All All right, right. Take care. Thanks, David. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support.